Hello, everyone, and welcome to the YJBM Science News Podcast, where we discuss the most recent science news from across the Yale community. I'm Samantha, a first-year MPH student in the Department of Health Policy. And I am Laura, a second-year PhD student in microbiology here at Yale. Okay, some exciting articles for us to talk about today. But first, I want to mention, this is our 10th podcast episode. Hey. <laughs> Um, so, Mara, do you want to start us off? Yeah, absolutely. So, the first paper that we have today is a collaborative study led by the lab of Andrew Wong at Yale. And what they found is a small molecule that can boost white cell count. That is really cool. So, well, take us back. What's the essence of their discovery? Okay, well, let's talk about what white blood cells are, mm. right? Yeah. Uh, white blood cells are just immune agents in your organism. They circulate through the blood and uh, they identify any threats. They recruit immune system to combat it. So there are a lot of diseases associated with low white blood cells because that would mean that your organism is not producing enough and the immune response is not going to be as robust. And in severe cases, it can lead to complete immune suppression um, like immune competence. And another problem is that but where there are some drugs that increase the production of white blood cells in bone marrow, such as GCSF, um, they do it over a long period of time, and sometimes that is bad for the organism. It is not a good model. And what we really need are some novel therapies which will be active for a shorter period of time. Okay, so what did the researchers find? Well, they focused on one specific small molecule, which they call A485. We already know that this is a what's called small molecule inhibitor. Um, again, it's a small molecule that inhibits one of the processes responsible for low blood cell count in leukemia. So we don't really understand all of the tiny details of it, but we do know that this process leads to, uh, it's related more like to modulating the size and number of leukocytes. So the white blood cells that are released into blood. And what they found is when they supplement this molecule to mice, and I, I need to mention that this mice for first underwent chemotherapy, which specifically targeted bone marrow. And this way, they're not really producing much white blood cells at all. So what they did, they supplemented them with this new drug, and then they t uh, treated them with a bacterium, which usually causes disease. What they found is that if the mice were treated with A485, they were able to combat disease more efficiently than the ones that were not. The ones that were not just succumbed to disease because they don't have a functional immune system um, and pretty much died. But the ones that actually had this drug, they were able to release more white blood cells and actually have some immune response against this bacterium. That is so exciting. So we see how this works for mice, but what are the implications for human health? Well, they're thinking about it in terms of a new treatment for immunosuppressive conditions, uh, which there's a wide range of, as you can imagine. But also, as they've shown in mice, it could be used as a supplemental therapy during chemo or uh, radiation of bone marrow. So, for example, if somebody undergoes this kind of therapy right now, the only thing they can use against uh, bacterial infections that it will face is things like antibiotics which may not always be efficient or uh, good for them, as we all know about antibiotics, of course. 
Well, this kind of therapy allows the body itself to supplement worldwide blood cells, even if it's depleted of them. And additionally, they found that the current therapy that I mentioned earlier, the GCSF, which also functions in a similar loop uh, biochemically, it has an additive effect with the uh, A485. So it can be used together. And as it is that, it has more potential for development of better therapies in the future. That's really exciting. No, I'm excited to see how um, use of this A485 and GCSF might work together in the future. Yeah, me too. All right. What is the next one for us, Sam? So this next study we'll be talking about attempts to kind of leave the bounds of the known risks of opioids and explore the consequences of opioids on cardiovascular disease. So the effects of opioids on CVD, cardiovascular disease, are relevant because opioids are often prescribed to treat pain and chronic pain, which is highly prevalent among older Americans who are also, you know, coincidentally, uh, the most at risk of CVD. So because of this, a study led by Dr. Min Hee Sung, an ex instructor of medicine at Yale, took data from the Veterans Aging Cohort Study and studied patients with little to no prior exposure to opioids, no opioid use disorder, and no severe illness one year after the start of the study, and then analyzed the association between prescription opioid exposure over the following three years and incident CVD. Interesting. So what did the study find? Well, through the examination of their eligible population, they found, first of all, that hypertension, diabetes, current smoking, alcohol and cocaine use disorder, and depression were higher among those receiving opioids. And then, you know, in terms of cardiovascular disease, they found that unadjusted CBD incidence rates per hundred per thousand, sorry, uh, person years and adjusted analyses of increased hazard of incident CBD both showed to be increased among those patients who were prescribed opioids versus those who were not. So put simply, opioids are associated with increased risk of CBD and are a potential modifiable um, CBD risk factor. And then on the other hand, kind of alongside of this, dosage is also a factor in the association between CBD and opioid use. So the study found that not only are opioids associated with higher incidence of CBD, but there is also a direct relationship between the dosage and the risk, meaning that the higher the opioid do dosage, the higher the increased risk of CBD. This is very scary, honestly. Yeah. Well, what do you think it will mean for prescription opioid use, practically? Yeah, so it just means that we need to be more careful about prescribing opioids when treating patients with chronic pain, according to Dr. Sung, because we also need to be wary when taking patients off of opioids because suddenly stopping prescription opioids could be just as bad or worse for them in other ways, like psychologically, if you just abruptly cut off their um, supply, you, they're essentially addicted. So it'll be hard to get them off um, cold turkey. So there need to be other effective pain management options at hand to mitigate the risks of both, you know, stopping opioid use and to even prevent the prescription of opioids for chronic pain to begin with. Because if your pain is chronic, you're always going to, you're going to need this pain management long term. And so you don't really want to hop into taking opioids long term. Um, and because of that, Dr. Song suggests 
non-pharmacologic options such as, you know, physical therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy for chronic pain. I see. You know, this makes sense. And uh, of course, we understand how much opioids are a problem in this country and overprescription is a big deal. Yeah. yeah, no, I feel like I personally have experienced that not in a use disorder type of way, honestly. But um, I got my wisdom teeth out and the doctor was like, oh, I guess your your teeth are pretty impacted. Here's 40 Vicodin. Yeah, and Vicodin, for those of you who do not know, is not like a starter strength thing. No, <laughs> it's pretty high up there. Yeah, one Vicodin made me very happy. I was very much at ease. <laughs> uh, I wonder if we can learn from other countries who do not have opioids as available for prescription as we do. Oh my gosh, I'm sure. But I, you know, at, at every point there are inherent risks. You know, I'm sure that maybe their therapies have their high, high points and low points in terms of effectiveness and maybe even, you know, addictiveness. So... We'll see. Yep. More research is needed. Yeah. Um, okay. Take us to our last study. What is this article about? Well, in this article, they stumble across a really big problem. So they are dealing with the question of how exactly is energy distributed in the brain? And while this sounds very broad, let me just narrow it down a little bit. Well, our body uses up a lot of energy. That's why we need food. <laughs> Well, brain uses up almost 20% of body's energy. It is a very hard-working organ. And researchers were trying to figure out how exactly do this pattern look like. So are neurons using this, the energy more on an individual level? How is it distributed? The problem is that we were lacking a lot of instruments to do that prior to current point in science development. So that's why we still don't know the answers to the questions. Okay, so what methods did they use? Well, they used a novel method called highlight. Um, and it is basically a very, very intricate fluorescent biosensor that can go on a very microscopic level so that they're able to image and see metabolic activity and um, like energy metabolism within individual neurons. And the model they're using for this is C. elegans. Um, it is a type of nematode worm. It is a very popular model for um, a lot of scientific studies. And while I'm not sure how much is used in neurology specifically, but I can imagine it's, it's used quite a bit. And um, those studies are really translatable when it comes to other higher order organisms as well. Okay, and what did they discover? Well, I would not call it like a single discovery. Like, for example, we were talking about in the first study, it's, uh, it's more of a framework thing. So they were able to build what they call a landscape or a map of energy distribution across cells and across sets of individual neurons. Something else they did is they also examined metabolism in individual neurons, not only in terms of like energy distribution, but through genetic analysis. So they were looking specifically on some regulatory enzymes that we know take part of in metabolism and energy metabolism. Um, and this way, in this very broad scale study, they were able to build a more robust model of how does how is energy distributed between cells and inside neurons themselves. Well, that's really interesting. I I will say a little bit of the technical stuff is above my pay grade, but it's really cool to learn about. Yeah, I think 
it's really, really interesting to learn about. And additionally, I, while I don't see them talking about some translational stuff, like how can we use some disease, but since it contributes to our understanding of brain function, I can imagine it will be, it'll find its implications in medicine as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, just looking at the topic of this, which is, you know, powering the brain and energy to singular cells, I'm wondering, you know, how we can do things like stimulating that in order to, I don't know, would it make me smarter? <laughs> well, first we need to identify what exactly does that. <laughs> I know, I know. Maybe it's not an energy problem. <laughs> but but you're right, though. Uh, energy is really everything for our organism, right? The death is the fact that our organism does not produce any more energy. This is this is the main issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're, well, we're definitely not moving away from cellular death, but we're definitely moving closer to understanding how to maybe combat some diseases through, like, neural stimulation and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. You know, mitochondria, powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> ATP, baby. Amen. Up well. Thank you guys for being with us here today. This was a fun episode. Three articles instead of our usual four, but I hope you found them interesting. Yeah, thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Bye.